0: Welcome to Navara Live. I'm Moya Lothi-McLean, and serving as the Nadine Doris to my Boris tonight is the excellent Ash Sarkar.
1: I'm obsessed with you, Moya. I just want you to be Prime Minister again. Ash, as always, I'm
0: thrilled to see your face. And tonight, we will be taking you through the latest on the illegal migration bill and Emmanuel Macron's spanner in the works. We'll also be talking about a new moral panic for spring in the form of sex education in schools, and GB News is blowing through the cash faster than you can say Ofcom breach. All that and more tonight. But first, the debate over the government's proposed legal migration bill has migrated. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak is due to meet France's Emmanuel Macron tomorrow, when the topic of small boats will be on the table. It's being reported that Sunak will ask Macron to agree to take back asylum seekers who cross the channel, But the Times has this. Britain hopes to secure a long-term deal with the EU to return illegal immigrants who cross the English Channel. In exchange, the UK would accept refugees from the EU. However, government sources have played down the likelihood of any agreement during the Paris summit amid concerns it would require EU-wide agreement. They will instead focus on a new deal to increase police patrols on French beaches. The article goes on to say this. A European diplomat said, why would Macron take back Brexit Britain's returns when other EU members like Italy are not following the Europe rules? It will not happen. The French president is demanding that Britain agree to a multi-year settlement to put, quote, boots on the ground on the beaches of northern France. Now, Britain has already paid out at least £232 million pounds in payments to France for beach policing since 2014. And the most recent came in November last year, when Braverman agreed a £63 million pound payment to increase beach patrols by 40%. Macron may be hostile, but Sunak isn't being completely isolated, by our European neighbours. The fascists are behind him. Wunderbar. French far-right politician Eric Zemmour posted this on social media. The message is clear. In the UK, illegal immigrants are not welcome and will receive no preferential treatment. Congratulations to the British Prime Minister who, unlike Macron's government, has chosen to protect his people against migratory submersion. Notice that phrase, migratory submersion, very pleasant. That is a reference to the white nationalist Great Replacement Theory. It's the idea that there's a conspiracy to eliminate the white population of Europe through migration. And Italy's right-wing deputy PM, Matteo Salvini, posted this on Instagram. The text is an Italian translation of this quote from Sunak's speech. If you arrive illegally in the UK, you can't claim asylum, you can't claim benefit from our modern slavery protections, you can't make spurious human rights claims, you can't stay. Beneath this post, Salvini wrote, quote, words from the UK Prime Minister, harsh but fair. And relatedly, but moving on now from the terrifying to the ridiculous... The row around Gary Lineker has reached new levels of absurdity following his tweet saying the government's language on migration was similar to that used in 1930s Germany, and I'm yet to see evidence that it isn't. Amazingly, Lineker's tweet became the top story on the BBC News at 10 last night. Not the plight of asylum seekers themselves or the legality of the bill or its morality, but a pundit's Twitter account, albeit one of the BBC's highest earners. So Lineker does hold a lot of sway. Now, Suella Braverman has obviously joined in on the outrage generated by Lineker's tweet. The Home Secretary appeared on Nick Robinson's political thinking podcast, where she said this. It is uh, from a
2: personal point of view to hear that kind of characterisation um is offensive because, as you said, my husband is Jewish, my children are therefore directly descendant from people who were murdered in gas chambers during the holocaust and it, uh, uh and my husband's family is very you know feels very keenly the the impact of the holocaust actually, and i um you know to to kind of throw throw out uh those kind of flippant Analogies diminishes, it diminishes the unspeakable tragedy that millions of people went through. And I don't think anything that is happening in the UK today can come close to what happened in the Holocaust. So I I find it a a lazy and um, unhelpful comparison to make.
3: Maybe maybe it's not flippant, maybe it is passion, like the passion you feel, they just disagree with you.
2: Uh, well, I would never make those comparisons myself, and, as I said I you know we we saw it during brexit i was I was called a Nazi just for chairing the ERG or being a brexit supporter. Um I think that it's uh, an unhelpful way to frame the debate, which is actually focused on people's lives, compassion, control over our borders, and ultimately fairness and what the British people want.
0: Of course, Zoella Braverman wouldn't make those comparisons herself. It's her policy. But on the subject of what the British people want, it seems the latest legislation is horrifying even staunch right-wing allies. Even the Board of Deputies of British Jews have expressed concern at the new illegal migration bill. They tweeted this. Today's British Jewish community is descended from refugees and slash all migrants. We have significant concerns at the potential for newly proposed migration legislation to breach both the Refugee Convention and the Human Rights Act. While we understand that small boat crossings to the UK have increased notably in recent years, we believe that strengthening and enhancing safe, legal and viable routes to gaining asylum in this country will be a far more effective way to significantly reduce such numbers. And what about Gary Lineker himself? Well, he seemed to take the backlash in his stride, but he was also treated to this bizarre speech from the leader of the Commons, Penny Mordaunt. She willingly posted this video on social media. They say they want to stop
3: the boats, but they are not prepared to help us do it. They are both for and against free movement. They are both for and against the strikes. They are both for and against appearing on picket lines. They're both for and against nationalization. And I would say to the confused British public, look at what Labour do, not what they say. Are they discouraging strikes? Did they vote for minimum service levels to protect your interest? Did they support our measures to protect border security? Did they support tougher sentences for heinous crimes or the deportation of foreign criminals? Will they help us stop the boats? And if they answer no, then how can they be on your side? Labour are borrowing from the Gary Lineker playbook. They are a party, they are a party of gold hangers and the occasional left wing striker. Hanging around the goal mouth, poised to seize any opportunities and to take an easy shot. But that only works if the ball is in the right half. This country doesn't need goal hangers, it needs centre forwards. It needs people that put in the hard work take tough decisions, grip a problem and work out how to solve it and create those opportunities. And that is what we are doing. And it needs a team captain who knows his own mind, has a plan and what colour his football shirt is. Labour might be up at half time, but the second half is yet to be played.
0: Now, here's how Lineker replied to this. Thank you for mentioning me in your clumsy analogy. I'm just happy to have been better in the six-yard box than you are at the dispatch box. Best wishes. What a zinger. Quickly, Ash. On that football analogy, Penny Morden didn't seem to make sense of it.
1: Can you? Absolutely not. I mean, what you heard there were the shrieks and screams of a tortured metaphor, which perhaps solves the mystery of why the Conservatives are so keen to scrap the Human Rights Act. I could not make head nor tail of it. It sort of sounded like somebody who has taken acid and then tried to read the entirety of Cartilage-Free Captain in one afternoon and just vomited up every single word they read, just not necessarily in the right context or indeed order. I would love to see
0: a behind-the-scenes of the Spad who had to write that speech and then try and explain it to Penny Morden so that she could deliver it. And it didn't work. But now onto a more serious note. Ash, how pleased do you think Rishi Sunak will be with the support that he's receiving from the grimmest corners of the european far right
1: i actually think he'll be really pleased to tell you why the conservative government at the moment is playing the most duplicitous double game on migration of any party i can really remember now of course they're building on a decades-long foundation of anti-asylum scaremongering but what they've done is something which is really interesting on the one hand they are going full tilt at demonizing asylum seekers and what they're banking on is that the the tabloids have done the work of closely associating people who are seeking asylum with you know bogus claims and criminality and lies and deceit uh, basically the reason why asylum seekers become such a dirty word is because it's been totally unmoored from vulnerability, from a context where people are fleeing for their lives, for their safety and for their well-being. And it's become a sort of synonym for sneaky economic migrant. That has been what has happened to the public perception of asylum seekers over decades. And this is the thing which is being hammered again and again and again by Rishi Sunak's government. And on the other hand, if you look at what the government are trying to do they're trying to fill key labor shortages most notably in uh construction at the moment with what migrant labor one of the things which is sort of you know been a rift within Rishi Sunak's cabinet, is you've got Jeremy Hunt going, okay, we need to go growth, growth, growth. And that does mean some degree of liberalizing migration. That'll mean doing things like trying to attract more international students, uh, taking international students out of the immigration figures. And Suala Braverman, Mm -hmm. who's like, I will hunt down every last migrant personally, if it means getting a front page of the Telegraph. So there's a certain irony here, which is those you know, economic migrants who have been seen as the source of all of the UK's economic and housing woes, and that's why asylum seekers have in part been demonised, because they're basically seen as economic migrants in disguise, are at the same time uh, being wooed and sought after by Jeremy Hunt and Rishi Sunak. So this horrible onslaught against international law um, at the total departure from basic human uh, morality and decency, what it's trying to do is in part buy some political cover for this other half of their migration policy. Um, So it's totally duplicitous. It is um, total... it is the most naked and disgusting form of political calculation. And actually getting the kind mm-hmm. of endorsement from Eric Zemmour or Matteo Salvini, it burnishes the credibility of their hardline migration persona and helps obscure the real facts of what they're trying to do in terms of labour shortages.
0: And now on to our next story, which further covers demonisation. There is nothing the Tories love more than a moral panic. That's because they know that stoking anxieties about safety, especially when it comes to the likes of children, is a vote winner, or at least makes people abstain from voting for other parties. Presenting a false but frightening picture of the world and then promising to combat it is a cycle we've seen again and again and again. Panics targeting asylum seekers, as we've talked about, and trans people are currently at their peak. But a new one is already brewing. And it involves sex education in schools. Miriam Cates became a Tory MP in 2019's Red Wall Intake. And in Prime Minister's questions this week, she asked this question.
3: Graphic lessons on oral sex, how to choke your partner safely, and 72 genders. This is what passes for relationships and sex education in British schools. Across the country, children are being subjected to lessons that are age-inappropriate, extreme, sexualising, and inaccurate, often using resources from unregulated organisations that are actively campaigning to undermine parents. This is not a victory for equality, it is a catastrophe for childhood. Will my right honourable friend honour his commitment to end inappropriate sex education by commissioning an independent inquiry into the nature and extent of this safeguarding scandal? Can I say I I share my honourable friend's concerns and thank her for her work in this area. Uh, That's why I've asked the Department for Education to ensure that schools are not teaching inappropriate or contested content in RSHE. Our priority should always be the safety and well-being of children. And schools should also make curriculum content and materials available to parents. Uh, As a result of all of this, we are bringing forward a review of RSHE statutory guidance and and we'll start our consultation as soon as possible.
0: That question by Miriam Cates resulted in a flood of Tory support. Education Secretary Gillian Keegan, who you saw nodding along, posted this on social media shortly afterwards. I am deeply concerned by reports of inappropriate sex education lessons in schools. We are reviewing sex education guidance to make sure schools are not teaching content that is inappropriate and schools should ensure they're making content available to parents if requested. Minister for Education, Claire Coutinho, added this. There have been increasing reports of inappropriate sex education content being taught in schools. This is a difficult area for schools to navigate, but it's important that while we prepare children for adulthood, we're not exposing them to adult content. Before this week's Prime Minister's Questions, Cates had coordinated the signing of a letter to Rishi Sunak among Tory MPs. There are 46 signatories there, including people like Andrean Jenkins, Jonathan Gullis, Priti Patel and Desmond Swain. I won't read it all out because it's long, but here is the important bit. In your leadership campaign last year, you committed to ending inappropriate sex education in our schools Sadly, it is becoming increasingly clear that the situation is getting worse, with children in schools across the UK being subjected to relationships and sex education that is inaccurate, sexualising and graphic and age-inappropriate. A recent report commissioned by Miriam Cates, MP, demonstrates the nature and extent of some of the materials being used in British classrooms and the report makes for disturbing reading. It's useful to remember that RSC was only made compulsory in 2019. So this is a very new programme we're talking about and that these particular MPs are attacking. But let's get into the details. What report is Kate's referring to there in her self-penned letter she writes in third person? Well, the report is called What is Being Taught in Relationships and Sex Education in Our Schools? And it's published by New Social Covenant Unit. That is a think tank set up by none other than Miriam Cates and fellow Tory MP Danny Kruger. It espouses traditional family values and seems to particularly value heterosexual marriage. Well, what does that report say? The introduction is pretty clear. It says that students are being, quote, politically indoctrinated with ideas that are destructive to a sense of self, of family, and even of nationhood sex education to destroy our nationhood. I see. But as for the claims about RSE lesson content specifically, in her PMQs question, Kate said that, quote, graphic lessons on oral sex, how to choke your partner safely, and 72 genders. This is what passes for relationship and sex education in British schools. Let's see if it checks out. In Kate's own report, there are two, two, references to oral sex. The first one comes from a book, Great Relationships and Sex Education. The key learning here is that it doesn't make sense to talk about gay sex or straight sex, as there are many different ways that two bodies can come together to have sex. It may involve mutual masturbation, oral sex, penetrative sex, vaginal or anal, using sex toys, and having orgasms together. These activities can be enjoyed, or not, by people of any sex, gender, or sexuality. Would you, at home, call that graphic? The second reference in Cates' report is from a provider of sexual health resources to teenagers, and it's actually taken from their website, which explicitly says this content is for young people who are 16 plus. But actually, sex isn't just intercourse, it's outercourse too. Sexual touching, oral, kissing, massaging. Anything on the outside of the body counts as sex too. Anal sex and oral sex on the penis are also types of intercourse sex. Further, there are lots of different types of relationships, whether that's to do with sexuality, pansexual, bisexual, homosexual, etc. Or formation, polygamous, open, etc. All types of sex and relationships are valid, as long as they're consensual. Again... Is this what passes for graphic depictions of oral sex among 16-year-olds? Because I remember reading some Jilly Coopers that went a lot further at 16, and I didn't have the RSE lessons to outline what sex actually looked like outside of novels. Anyway, what about choking? There's one reference to it in Kate's report, and it's from a website called Cliterally the Best. Part of their website gathers together RSE education materials for school teachers, but... Guess what? A guide to choking isn't among them. That's on a separate part of the website, a sex positivity blog which isn't aimed at children. So what about those 72 genders that Kate's mentioned in her question? It doesn't occur in the report at all. Where does it come from then? Perhaps this story that The Telegraph reported late last month might hold a clue. School suspends sex education after drag queen told 11-year-olds there are 73 genders. Isle of Man suspends sex education after performer leaves youngsters traumatized with, quote, age-inappropriate material. Now, key question, is it 72 or 73? Perhaps a gender was lost between The Telegraph and Kate's question in the Commons. Regardless, the article goes on to say this. The Isle of Man government has launched an independent review of its personal, social, health and economic, curriculum, after parents raised the alarm about the graphic, disproportionate, indecent presentation of sexual acts and different gender identities understood to have been taught in lessons. Parents of pupils at Queen Elizabeth II High School in Peel on the Isle of Man have reported that Year 7 pupils were taught by a drag queen who told them there are 73 genders. When one upset child responded and said, there's only two, the drag queen allegedly responded, you've upset me and made the pupil leave the class. Drag queens, 73 genders, indecent presentation of sexual acts. Well, enough about my cabaret show in Vegas. However, going back to the Isle of Man, the school has a different account of how it went down. According to the BBC, quote, The school told the parent that the student was removed from the lesson for the way in which he spoke to teachers, rather than for what he said. And the head teacher said this. Having viewed a video which is currently circulating on social media relating to the school's RSE curriculum and its delivery, we are concerned there could be a number of inaccuracies with the information being shared. Given the concerns raised, and in order to be open and transparent, we requested an independent review into the situation. As such, I am happy to take part in the independent review, which is being deployed by the Department of Education, Sport and Culture, and would encourage our community to avoid speculation at this time. Sadly, the Telegraph did not avoid speculation. But even if events did occur as described by the Telegraph, which seems pretty unlikely given everything we've just heard, Kate's evidence just doesn't come near to backing up the claims that she made in PMQs. In fact, her method seems to be to implicate providers of RSE materials, not for what they do in schools, but for the different material they produce aimed at adults. And Kate's report ends with some questions. This is where you get the clearest sense of what she might really be after. Those questions include these. What are gender stereotypes and why must they be not tolerated? Is gender identity meant to be taught as fact, theory, fiction or not at all? Is the promotion of gender theory causing trans identification leading to serious harms? Can we do without a concept of normality in sexual relations and should the state, the schools or RSE providers have a role in determining either what is normal, normative or what should be respected? does the state intend schools to take a positive, neutral or negative approach to the institution of marriage? Should love, procreation and all the concept of motherhood and fatherhood have a special place in RSE? And why are there currently next to no resources about this fundamental aspect of humanity? ASH, this idea of normative sex. These are talking points that are very familiar And we're used to seeing them, along with things like gender presentation um, and children, the protection of children, we're used to seeing them target everyone at the moment, from drag queens to trans people. What is this panic really about? And what is its ultimate political function?
1: I think you're totally right to look at this not as separate and discrete moral panics, but as aspects of the same moral panic. And so... What this particular moral panic does is that it tries to link together paedophilia with LGBT people. And so blurring the boundaries between those things until you start thinking of them as synonyms for one another. So any time you inform children about the existence of LGBT people, about gender identities, about non-heterosexual relationships, that is seen as a form of grooming. So you can do that just by um, repeatedly insisting on the age inappropriateness of any mention of these topics whatsoever. Whereas, I don't know about you, Moya, but I remember being like four or five and playing dress up at nursery and at school and being asked, who are you going to marry? right? That was just a a really standard thing. When it comes to being socialized into my heterosexuality, of course, there was a sense that explicitly sexual content was bad. But in terms of acknowledging the existence of heterosexual relationships, or indeed the possibility that I might one day want to participate in one, not only was that seen as not being age-inappropriate at all, that was seen as part of a healthy socialization of me as a child, right? And so it, it's about applying totally different rules when it comes to queer relationships, and the other thing is to, I think, you know, make real—not um, just a backlash, but to try and, and win back terrain which has been lost by the socially conservative right over the last few decades. Um, one of the ways in which it's lost is this idea that sex is inherently dirty and wrong and no one should talk about it. Um, this idea that if you inform young people about the choices that they have available to them, well, they'll only make bad ones. In fact, the evidence runs in the other direction. If you inform people how to make choices which are based on uh consent and self-knowledge and self-value, that they'll tend to make better choices. If you make available things like advice on sex and sexually transmitted infections and contraception Mm -hmm. and abortion, that actually uh, this helps people lead happier and healthier lives. That's the direction of evidence. Mm -hmm. And so if you're a social conservative like Miriam Cates or Daddy Kruger, You really have lost out a lot in the last few decades. Mm -hmm. Section 28, that's been scrapped. So you no longer have to uh, de facto consign, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, non-straight pupils to um, years of misery within the school environment. And there's also been wider cultural changes. There's been huge steps made in terms of destigmatization of queer relationships. So this is about winning back some of that terrain. what's being said about the age inappropriateness of any discussion of gender in schools and, in fact, trying to get to a place where you can't discuss these things at all. So trying to say, okay, well, under 16 is too young uh, for a student to choose their own pronouns or uh, wear clothes typically associated with the opposite gender. Well, again, is Section 28 come again? It's just being applied to uh, the, the... the world of gender. Um, so then you kind of have to ask, well, well, why? W- why is this the case? Why is this the moral panic? And I think that there are multiple reasons for it. One is, like I said, social conservatives as a whole are losing out. Um, in particular, if you are a very religious social conservative like Danny Kruger is, um, you are in a really uncomfortable position where the people who are most uh, vocal about their opposition to inclusive sex education. Aren't your fellow Christian evangelicals? They're Muslims who are roundly uh, decried. And in this case, um, the protesters in Birmingham, the protesters in Batley, rightly criticized um, for their sense of what should be in sex education and what shouldn't be in sex education being totally out of step with a modern society. So you can't really find allies on that side. So you have to try and, you know, rather than. And just say outright um i don't think it's um it's morally correct to acknowledge the existence of gay people you have to find allies uh, in terms of uh the transphobic moral panic because this is something which has been given you know a little bit of liberal veneer to make it that little bit more politically and socially acceptable so i think that's one bit thing that's going on and i think that there is a, a real um crisis for conservatives in terms of just how much has changed socially and one of the things I think has really changed socially in the last 40-50 years is the proliferation of choice when it comes to romantic and sexual relationships. So to be a woman no longer means existing in a state of reproductive captivity where if you have sex it means you're rolling the dice with pregnancy. If you roll the dice with pregnancy the social consequences of being an unwed mother are so appallingly high that you're effectively forced into the institution of marriage and that was something which you know really did keep birth rates aloft uh for the latter uh, for you know for most of the 20th century um and so when you when you have all of these changes like contraceptives, abortions, the liberalization of divorce, and even the idea that you don't have to be a heterosexual at all, um, that really throws conservative ideas of the family into disarray. And that's why there's this connection to nationhood. It's while people have all of these choices, they're not going to form the kind of family that we believe uh, is the foundation of the nation, which is one man, one woman, uh, power very much, concentrated in the man's hands and women being kept in a state of reproductive captivity, which means that you constantly have a replenished pool of labor. So that's what I think the really big picture backdrop is to all of this stuff. I wouldn't be able to tell you how aware Miriam Cates is of it, but that's what I think is going on. It's also a very
0: nifty sleight of hand to link the social decay of 12 years of austerity to instead moral decay which you then associate with a very small minority that can act as a scapegoat. And we should remember that these sort of panics have real-world consequences. Hate crimes against LGBTQ people have risen by about 40% in the last 12 months, and I fear that they may go higher still if we carry on with this trajectory. Moving on, talking about the Tories again the distance between their actions and their words. The Tories like to trumpet that they are world leaders when it comes to environmental policies. um, One much cited achievement is that under Theresa May's premiership, the UK became the first major industrialized country in the world to sign its target of net zero by 2050 into law. But new research has revealed that since 2015, the Tory government has actually funded the fossil fuel industry by 20 billion pounds more than equivalent handouts that were given to renewable energy projects. Now, this analysis comes from the Liberal Democrats and was given exclusively to The Guardian. In the past six years, fossil fuel companies they found have received close to £80 billion from the public purse. In comparison, producers of renewable energy were given only £60 billion in support. And the problem seems to be getting worse. The Guardian. In 2020, renewable energy support was greater than fossil fuel support for the first time. However, fossil fuels have been receiving greater additional investment recently. From 2020 to 2021, they received an extra £1 billion of support from the government compared with 2020, a 10.7% increase. For renewable energy in the same year, total support for projects increased by just £1 million, or 0.01%. And where is a good chunk of that money going? To fund new fossil fuel extraction and mining projects, of course. One-fifth of the money given to fossil fuel companies by the Tories is being spent on brand new natural resource exploitation projects. Extraction of the likes of metals and minerals, remember, is responsible for 26% of all global carbon emissions – and the Tories are increasing their handouts, partly funded by the taxpayer, in 2021, their funding of these extraction projects rose by 20% to £2 billion. Ash, why are the Tories so keen to let the floods take us? Surely there is a conservative case for a green revolution. Why aren't they making it?
1: I think one of the things that you've got to... Realize about this is that yes, there is a conservative case for a transition to green energy. But when you think about the fact that the conservative party is the political arm of capital and capital is not rational, right? Capital is still wrapped up in fossil fuels uh, despite the shortening lifespan of the particular industry, then I think it makes sense that the Conservative Party's political decision-making, their policy-making, is a reflection of what's going on with capitalism. Um, Does it make sense? No. But I think that's why you, you have to, I think, get away from this idea that the rationality of the markets and business will save us because all the incentives are aligned uh, politically and in terms of where grants go and in terms of who wields influence to, you know, keep dancing on the top deck of a sinking ship. And
0: meanwhile, while the ship is sinking, hardcore Tory Brexiteers like Steve Baker have turned their attention from leaving the EU now that we have got Brexit done, apparently. Instead, they are focusing on climate change denial. And the net zero agenda itself is quickly becoming a new battle in the endless, wearying culture war. Baker and his ilk are arguing we simply can't afford to pursue a net zero agenda. Last year, he and 20 other Tory MPs formed a little band of merry men, the Net Zero Scrutiny Group. Supposedly, it was to examine the costs that a green industrial transition entails. But they have supported reports produced by the likes of the Global Warming Policy Foundation, a climate sceptic group based at the infamous Tufton Street, which denies a climate emergency is happening at all, despite an official announcement that said it was. Now, instead of disappearing into the ether, climate change denial, or climate scepticism as it's being increasingly rebranded, seems to be worming its way back into the political spotlight. Last month, the government was under pressure to sack Tony Abbott, the former Australian Prime Minister, who's now a key post-Brexit trade advisor for our sins, Abbott announced he joined the Global Warming Policy Foundation, which has been at the forefront of calls to restart fracking in the UK, which, of course, Liz Truss tried to do. Now, fears about the GWPF's influence are growing. The charity recently launched its Net Zero Watch campaign in order to scrutinise and to quote, highlight and discuss the serious implications of expensive and poorly considered climate change policies. The GWPF has long claimed it won't take money from anyone with an interest in an oil company. Well, a 2022 Open Democracy investigation found the opposite. Surprise, surprise. It revealed that Net Zero Watch had received hundreds of thousands of dollars in funding from US oil dark money. Now the GWPF is under investigation by the Charity Commission over whether it really is a lobbying group after some MPs, not Steve Baker, have complained about its activities.
1: The political incentives for the right and the incentives for media totally align to turn everything into a culture war and climate will not be exempt from that. So I think that you can't put the cart before the horse. It's actually cultural first and then climate rather than the other way around. And in terms of um, why it's successful, I wouldn't say that it necessarily is super duper successful, but it does, I think, point out some key weaknesses for the climate movement to address. So let's start with why it's not wholly successful. What we've seen is year on year on year, climate moving up in terms of issue salience in terms of voting behavior. And that's only going uh, to increase as the years go on, as we're seeing more extreme weather events, as we see and directly experience the impact of uh, volatile pricing in fossil fuel based energy as we experience the degradation of our air and our water all of these things are going to keep driving climate change up the agenda but where I think the key weaknesses are and this has been borne out by some of the polling which I think came out this week is that some of the areas which are most skeptical or uh, mistrusting of green policies are red wall seats, which have been really fucked over by things like flooding. Um, so, mm-hmm. so there's, there's something there where you go, okay, these are seats, which have been totally, uh, fucked, uh, by increasing, uh, extreme weather events. Um, and yet they're, they're, they're skeptical and they're mistrustful of green policies. And I think that that's a failure in messaging and also does reflect a kind of decades long weakness in the climate movement. It has always come across as very middle class, very educated, and has has been in danger of looking like people with money telling people without money that we're all going to have to get poorer. Right. And I think in some cases that's been true. In other cases, that's the stereotype which hasn't been, I think, successfully dislodged um, or gotten rid of. So I think that the central bit of messaging for the climate movement is that all of the measures that we're talking about, particularly domestically, so retrofitting houses uh, with air source heat pumps, with solar panels, Um, shifting towards renewables in the energy sector as a whole, insulating people's homes, making public transport uh, cheaper and more reliable and more widely available. Mm -hmm. These are all things which are going to make your life better and make the cost of living cheaper. Those are the two things that it's going to do. It is going to materially benefit your lives. And so that's the drum which I think the climate movement cannot stop banging that these are things which are going to improve your lives. You know, maybe you would prefer it if you didn't have to drive 10 minutes to a massive Tesco's to get eggs and you had a local shop on the corner of your street. You know, maybe you'll experience community differently. Maybe you'll like it more. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I think that when looking at the work of Steve Baker and the Net Zero Scrutiny Group and, you know, all of these jokers, they can sometimes appear a lot bigger than they are. And that's because whenever there's a new Tory grouping, uh, you know, they're going to get immediately invited onto Politics Live. They are going to have that disproportionate mm-hmm. media coverage. Mm-hmm. And it can sometimes obscure the real progress which has been made in driving up climate in terms of issue salience. In terms of how you combat this. these people, is that you just say again and again and again, under 12 years of your fucking government, you could have totally insulated us from the energy price shocks of the war in Ukraine. Because if 12 years ago, you'd gotten on the front foot with retrofitting houses, with making us less reliant on on imported gas and insulating our homes, we wouldn't be so vulnerable to the spike in energy prices. And we're here because of you and because of your failures. And what you're telling us now is delay again, delay again, let things get more expensive in the hope that it's just going to magically turn out all right. It's not gonna. So that's got to be the absolute core message, which is that this net zero scrutiny, just another expression of uh, deliberate Tory vandalism in the interest of fossil fuel capital.
0: Let's go to our next story. GB News may be where the truth goes to die, but its record on investment isn't so hot either. You may recall the heady days when the channel was launched in 2021 as the UK equivalent of Fox News. Since then, it has faced, quote, growing pains, including the departure of key talent like Andrew Neil, its founding directors and financiers, and many more jumping ship. And of course, many, many gaffes. Despite this, the right-wing channel has gained a small but growing audience. In December 2022, GB News managed to rack up nearly 3 million viewers. And for context, Sky News had a monthly reach of 8.5 million. It should, however, be noted that the daily average viewing time for GB News was only 41 seconds, which might explain why the channel's accounts are just so uneven. The channel has reported a £31 million pre-tax loss in its first year on air. Ouch. Companies' house records show that the biggest outgoing for GB News are the cost of sales and operating expenses in the year to May 2022. £25.4 million went on cost of sales, which, in case you don't know, because I didn't either, means how much it costs to produce goods or a service and £8.9 million was spent on operating expenses. Some of that money under those banners, of course, is going on attempts to attract marquee names like Nigel Farage and former GMTV host-turned-Tory MP Esther McVeigh. And as a press Gavette report shows, this on-screen talent commands a pretty hefty price tag. McVeigh was paid £58,650 by GB News in 2022 and her husband, fellow Tory MP Philip Davis, £46,203, according to PA Media. In December, Press Gazette found GB News had spent the most of any publisher on payments to MPs, spending £82,040 pounds between October 2021 and September 2022. The company spent £11 million pounds on wages and salaries in the most recent year, implying mean employee remuneration was just over £63,000. Navara, take note. But it doesn't look that, despite these massive wages, it doesn't look like GB News is going anywhere, even with those losses taken into account. The big bosses say they are, quote, satisfied with the results of the year and expect growth in the future performance of the company. They've got a pretty savvy financial buffer too. In August 2022, GB News got a massive £60 million cash injection from Brexiteer businessman Paul Marshall and Legatum, a Dubai-based investment company. This was despite the publicly messy departure of Spectator chairman Andrew Neil and the resignation of the original GB News directors. The channel also recently earned a reprimand from the UK broadcast regulator Ofcom. An investigation found that ex-presenter Mark Stein had made, quote, potentially harmful and materially misleading claims about COVID-19 vaccines on his primetime daily show. Stein resigned from GB News in February after the channel tried to make him personally pay any fines that might be issued by Ofcom for breaches of UK broadcasting law. Ofcom has now said it won't be issuing any fines or sanctions despite finding GB News broke regulations. So Mark Stein might be cursing the day he filmed a video and talked about the compliance officer at GB News being Ofcom's bitch.
1: GB News was never going to be a moneymaker. It was about advancing a particular kind of very, very reactionary, very, very authoritarian right-wing populism. And I would say, in terms of um their successes, um it's it's difficult to see uh if It's difficult to see whether they're having the impact and skewing the rest of the media coverage rightwards, or if that was just the direction of travel anyway. Um, Their audience, where they're going for, you know, socially conservative older viewers, um, despite all of the moral panics around cancel culture and, you know, you can't turn on TV without seeing mixed race, transgender people everywhere. Actually, these are audiences which are exceptionally well served when it comes to news content. Everybody is competing for them from BBC, ITV, Sky News, and of course, Talk TV as well. Um, So they're always going after a really small audience. Um, I'm not certain that GB News has, has become the sort of influential political force it had hoped to be, but with the deep pockets of their backers, they can afford to sort of sit back, wait and see where they're going. There has, of course, been a real pivot away from what they said they were going to do, which is original news gathering, breaking stories from outside of London, that kind of thing, and just replicating the kind of chatter and opinion-led content, uh, which I think that at the start, they had said that they were maybe a little bit Uh, skeptical of, or if not, you know, outright snooty about. That's why they're getting uh, Nigel Farage and Jacob Rees-Mogg and all of these Tory MPs and marquee names. It's basically like running a really, really expensive podcast. Um, And of course, Talk TV have done the exact same thing with the marquee name of Piers Morgan, basically all opinion. And they've done it in a much more slimmed down way because outside of the handful of programs that it actually airs live the rest of the time it's just you know the the talk radio studio going out live on tv um so yeah we'll have to see where it goes and whether it's actually going to pay off in terms of helping drag the media ecology rightwards um because i thought that uh that had been going very well even before uh The Legatum Institute, is it? I never know how to pronounce that one, Uh, ever dipped into their own pockets.
0: As Ash helpfully reminded us there, GB News is not the only right-wing media money pit on the scene. Part of the reason for that channel's huge outgoings is so it can compete with Rupert Murdoch's Talk TV, launched in April last year. Talk TV is home to the likes of Isabel Oakeshott and Jeremy Kyle. Its viewership is even smaller than GB News, but salaries rival it. Piers Morgan is reported to have signed a 50 million pound 3-year deal to host his daily flagship talk show. Of course, there happens to be a shortage of left-wing billionaires, so if you do want to support independent media, you can do that by visiting navara.media/support and backing us from 1 pound a month. But while we're here, there's one more development in the GB News saga that I'd like to discuss, which is the increasing infighting taking place within the government over the amount of Tory MPs signing up for slots on the channel, despite its questionable content and occasional Ofcom regulation breaches. Tory vice chair and professional offence merchant Lee Anderson is the latest serving MP to get his own GB News talk show, and he is the fifth Tory MP to sign up to the GB talent roster. But an evening standard diary entry suggests unrest in the ranks. They write. We hear that some in the party are hoping for better scrutiny of some of GB News' content. Last week, Commons leader Penny Mordaunt made a biting speech on the alarmist nonsense on GB News, saying that it is sandwiched between credible content. She quoted a recent monologue by presenter Neil Oliver, which falsely alleged a government conspiracy over food shortages and wrongly implied air raids in Ukraine are fake, calling them sound effects. Could there be a crackdown on some of the wilder elements on the channel soon? It's interesting as well, of course, because GB News was meant to be the outsider and now it's got a regular influx of establishment politicians appearing on its own news shows. Ash... But is GB News so fringe? Even the Tories don't think that it's a useful mouthpiece.
1: This is the kind of pickle that the Tories are in at the moment, which is yes, they do have a very authoritarian faction of their electoral base, who really like the red meat of, you know, bring back hanging and, you know, fire asylum seekers into the sun and all that kind of stuff. But when you look at the kinds of seats that the Conservatives have been losing so far, in particular, uh, you know, more in the Southeast and the Southwest, where they're really competing directly with the Liberal Democrats, it's a very different kind of voter. So these were voters who were quite turned off, even just by the rhetoric of levelling up you know, just the idea that some resources might be directed away from them. And if you add to that um, a sense of of rowing roll, back on the kind of uh, Social liberalism plus runaway asset price uh, appreciation that they're really into. They're like, well, hang on, we're served quite nicely by the Lib Dems, please and thank you. Um, so this could be something which, which ends up biting them in the ass. Yes, uh, they have their very own TV station in which they're allowed to say whatever mad shit they want, you know, Fifteen-minute cities means that you're banned from ever venturing to the Midlands again, or um, I don't know. But the COVID vaccine made somebody's cousin in Trinidad balls swell up, and then he got broken up with by his fiance. Like you know, you can say all of that stuff, but there might be an electoral cost to making that a much more visible part of your political offering.
0: Gosh, I didn't know that Nicki Minaj had been on GB News. Must have missed that slot. Thank you very much, though, for joining me tonight. It's been an absolute pleasure. And you've injected a little bit of optimism back into my climate understanding.
1: Oh, that's nice. I very rarely inject optimism into the show. So I'll be back with um, despair and melancholy next week.
0: Thank you so much, everyone, for watching this evening. Come back tomorrow night for another live stream from 6pm with Michael Walker. But for now, you've been watching Navara Media. Good night.
3: This broadcast is brought to you by Novara Media. Go to NovaraMedia.com support.